One of the songs that uh, we listen to uh, around my house with the kiddos is a song called The Scariest Song. And it's a silly song, but it has a, it has a good point behind it. Um, let me read you some lyrics from this song. It goes uh, like this. What's the scariest of woes? Some say snakes and some say spiders. What strikes terror to your toes? Some say floods and some say fires. Some say dentist drills or creepy clowns climbing up or falling down. Now, my vote goes to the dentist drill. That's a sound that I cannot stand. Oh, I cannot stand that sound. You know what? Many Christians find that sharing their faith is one of the scariest things of all. As believers, we have a tendency to talk a lot about telling people about Jesus, but then when it comes to actually telling people about Jesus, well, that just sort of freaks us out, and we sort of just shut down. We don't want to be perceived as that weird religious person. We don't want to be seen as rude or intolerant. Maybe we're scared we won't have the answers to the questions that that are posed to us. For whatever reason, it seems that Christians often simply do not tell others about Jesus. Is, is that okay? Is it okay for us to know him and have a relationship with him and then not tell others about him? Is, is that kind of the picture of the Christian life? Well, obviously, as we look into to scripture, it's, it's really not. This morning, we'll begin in Acts chapter 11, and, and we'll be thinking together about how we are called to, to tell others about Jesus. As we continue our series, Who We Are, taking a look at, at who God has called us to be as a church We're wrapping up this morning, looking at the third aspect of our mission statement, to love God, to grow in Christ, to tell the world about the love of Jesus. That's what we're thinking about. In these chapters, we'll see that the church is meant to tell the world about the love of Christ. The church is meant to tell the world about the love of Christ. We'll first begin reading in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, and Just to kind of get us up to speed, Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried. He's come back to life. He's made appearances uh, to over 500 people. He's ascended back up into heaven. And the day of Pentecost has come. This is the day where the Spirit fell on his followers and they began to preach the gospel powerfully. And the church at Jerusalem exploded. People were being saved. Lives were being changed. It It was a powerful time in the life of the church. But what also happened is Jewish leaders saw that Judaism was being affected by Christianity and they began to persecute the Christians. In fact, Stephen was martyred. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was killed for his faith. And so because of the persecution that was intensifying in Jerusalem, Christians began to move away. They began to go other places in fear of their life. And some left Jerusalem, and they went north nearly 300 miles to a town called Antioch, Antioch in Syria. And we'll pick up taking a look at what's happening at the church at Antioch, beginning in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So some who had left Jerusalem and went up to Antioch, some were from Cyprus. This was an island uh, out in the Mediterranean Sea, about a two-day's journey from Antioch. Other, uh, others were from Cyrene. This was a city in North Africa. Uh, if you'll remember, the man who was required to carry Jesus' cross was, was from Cyrene. Uh, these believers who traveled from Jerusalem up to Antioch began to share the gospel with people. They began to, to preach the gospel. God's hand was on them, and the church began to, to grow. The church began to, to be reaching people. As we read, we'll see that this is a church that's characterized by prayer, a passionate prayer, and we see that a lot of people were being saved. Now, the church at Jerusalem heard about all that was going on in Antioch, and so they sent Barnabas up to Antioch to see what was going on and to encourage the church there. And so the, uh, uh, Barnabas encouraged them in the Lord and uh, to, to continue on in the faith. And what we see is that people continued to be saved. People continued to come to Christ through the persecution, God was at work. Now, we've all seen the giant sequoia trees out in California. We, we've seen those towering trees either in pictures or perhaps uh, in real life. For a number of years, uh, the uh, government worked hard to make sure that fires didn't burn in the Yosemite, in that area where the, the giant sequoia trees are. They were trying to protect the trees. But what they discovered is that preventing all fires, suppressing all fires, actually was counterproductive. Because when the fires came, uh, the, the, the seeds from these cones would release and the ground would be cleared so that they could actually germinate. And competing brush and shrubbery and vines and all that sort of stuff would be burned up. But the sequoias with their thick bark would, would be fine. And so now controlled burns, etc., are, are permitted for the health of these sequoia trees. And this is exactly what you see happening here. The Lord allowed persecution in Jerusalem. What was he doing? He had a plan. In persecution, believers began to go other places, and they began to plant other churches, and they began to share the gospel with other people. So, so God was at work, and the church was burning bright in Antioch. Now... From Acts chapter 11, verse 29, through Acts chapter 12, verse 25, this is kind of what's happening. And in 1129, the church at Antioch is aware of a famine in Judea. So there was a need in the church at Jerusalem for, for help. And so the church at Antioch took up an offering to send to Jerusalem. And they were going to send Barnabas. Now remember, Barnabas had, had come from the church at Jerusalem, had gone north, up to the church at Antioch. So they're sending Barnabas back to the church at Jerusalem as well as Saul, also known as Paul. And they're carrying an offering from the Antioch church to the church at Jerusalem. And at this point, the narrative shifts in chapter 12 to what's going on in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. They went back up to Antioch. John Mark went with them and we'll pick up uh, there. Now, what you see happening in, in chapters uh, 11 and 12 here where the churches are supporting one another, the churches are, are still called to, to be this, to do this. As a matter of fact, in our congregation, uh, we're, we're called to try to help other believers. And, and a lot of churches all over the, the country are, are working with and supporting churches down on the coast that, that have been affected by the hurricanes uh, doing just what we see, ultimately for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the mission, that it, that it might be furthered. Um, 
Our own church, we're partnering with Central Baptist Church out in Port Arthur, and we're striving to, to help that church. They, they had floodwaters that affected all their buildings, and we've had some folks from our church who have gone out there and help, and we hope to, to have some more. But, but we see this kind of cooperation in the early church among followers of Jesus, and, and it's a good thing. It's the kind of way that, that we should be operating. Now, in Acts 13, chapter 1, let's, let's look. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, pardon me. Let's pick up there. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What you see is we kind of get a list of some of the prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Prophets, of course, were those who could declare the word of God. They could speak about events that were to come, but most often they they proclaimed uh, just God's clear word. And there, there were teachers here who were teaching the word and teaching the faith. And we get a list of them. Barnabas is included in this list. Saul or Paul is included in this list. Simeon called Niger. Niger is Latin for, for black, and so uh, most scholars believe that, that he was probably a black man. Lucius is from Cyrene. That's in northern Africa. Menaean grew up with Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch of Galilee. So he was, a, he was a leader in Galilee. He grew up with him. So he would have had some high social standing. What you see in the church at Antioch is interesting. You see a remarkable diversity. People that wouldn't normally be together are together. Why? Because the gospel united them. Because the gospel, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, and answering his call to be on mission was bigger than anything that might divide. And so you see this beautiful diversity in the church at Antioch. It was good. They were worshiping this church was worshiping together they were they were fasting and they were praying this was a vibrant congregation people weren't dragging in on sunday morning half asleep these folks were encountering god this wasn't business as usual they were before the lord and they were passionate and they they sensed the direction of the holy spirit a, uh, an impression from the lord that that they were to send out missionaries and so Barnabas and Saul were selected, or, or Paul, were selected to be sent out. And in verse 3, we see that they laid their hands on them, and they prayed for them. And when it says they, it's probably the whole church gathering around them and praying for them, commissioning them to go out and, and to share the gospel, to plant churches. So, so what we see here in the early days of the church, Jerusalem church is, is going, people from Jerusalem church go up and plant a church in Antioch, and now Antioch is sending people out to go and plant churches and reach people for the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of how it's all supposed to work. Now, when you have exciting news, something that, that you're really happy about, you can't wait to, to tell. Let's say that, that you won the game. You can't wait. You're texting, hey, guess what? I won. Or guess what? We won. Or our kids, they, they won. I mean, we're, we're telling everybody. Or we're engaged. And so you get all these pictures of, uh, of how clever and everything the engagement and proposal was. And, and that's posted everywhere and shared everywhere. Or we're having a baby and the creative ways that people come up with to announce that now. Interesting. At any rate, when we have really good news, we want to tell people about it. That's what you see happening here in Antioch. They realize this is the gospel. This is life for people. 
And they wanted people to know. They, they wanted to share. This is how it's supposed to be in, in, in the church. Now, in Acts 13, 12, we're, we're going to jump to verse 12. These two have taken off, and, and they're going on this missionary journey. Uh, Paul's first missionary journey. In Acts 13, 4, we see that, that Paul and Barnabas had gone to Cyprus, again, an island that was in the Mediterranean Sea, about a two days travel from Antioch and Syria. And on the island, we're going to see how God was at work. In verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here on the island of Cyprus, the, the governor or the leader uh, of the island becomes a believer. And as far as we know, this is the first time that a land was governed by a Christian leader. And so we see God moving and we see God at work. Uh, in, in 13, verse 14, we see that they traveled to Antioch and Pisidia. So this is the, a town with the same name, but in a different region, in the region of Pisidia. And they traveled there. In verse 43, we're going to see how God is at work. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of Jesus. So what do you see? Many Jews, as well as those who had converted to Judaism, who were from other nations and countries, became followers. So God is working. Cyprus, working in Antioch, working in Antioch and Pisidia. Let's look at verse 48 and 49. Still the same town. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. What do you see? You got Jews coming to Jesus. You got converts to Judaism coming to Jesus. You have Gentiles who were non-Jews coming to Jesus. And in verse 49, we see that the whole region, the word of God was spreading like wildfire. The whole region was, was being impacted by the word. You know, we see a lot of groups in our day that are troubling, white supremacy groups, Antifa, these groups that, that seem intent on, on hating people because of differences. But what you see happening here in the early church is the opposite of that. You see people who were completely different, who had nothing in common, but who were coming together. We saw it in the leadership, and now we see it in the people who were, who were coming to Christ and becoming a part of the church at Antioch and Pisidia. We, we see that, that the gospel's changing lives, and people are making a love for Jesus and a passion for the mission the main thing. And when we make a love for Jesus the main thing, the other things that might divide us, well, they don't because they're little. They're silly in light of the cross. They're silly in light of the gospel. So in the early church, there was remarkable diversity. There still should be diversity in the church around those who know Jesus and love Jesus. That draws us together, regardless of other things that might separate us, but of course, out in the world with those who don't know Jesus, certainly separate, certainly divide. And so we see God at work. Let's go to uh, chapter thir- or to uh, verse 42 of chapter 13. Here we see that, that this pair traveled to Iconium. Let's pick up in verse 1 of 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So Jews and Greeks here are coming to know Jesus in Iconium. Now, (coughs) pardon me, in Acts 14.20, we see that this team travels to Derby. And picking up in verse 21, 
When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they preached in Derby and they made many disciples. Many became followers of Jesus, began to grow in him to, to become disciples. And then we see in verses 22 and 23, they left Derby and they began to revisit the churches that they had planted. Uh, they, they traveled, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that though many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So after preaching to Derby, they go to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. And what are they doing? They're strengthening the disciples in their faith. They're continuing to teach them the faith to help them grow deeper. Notice that they had planted churches. They hadn't started some other kind of organization. They hadn't just made Christians and said, hey, you're on your own. Everyone's, it's just you and Jesus. Go out and be close to him. Go get him. No, they're planting churches because that's God's plan. You see it all throughout the New Testament that that believers would be a part of a church, a member of a church, committed to a church, and committed to the spread of the gospel through that congregation. They're planting churches. And not just that, they're appointing elders. When you look in... Uh, the New Testament, the word elder and pastor are synonyms. They're, they're the same thing. So, so they're, they're, they're appointing pastors or, or elders in every church. There's a, there's a plurality of elders here. So we see in the New Testament that, that the structure of the church matters. Those are things that maybe we don't get too excited about, but, it, but it's important from a, from a New Testament perspective that, that we recognize that having a solid structure in place and a, and a biblical polity in place is important. These churches are brand new. What, what are they doing? Paul and Barnabas are trying to make sure that there's solid leadership so that those churches maintain health, so that those churches are faithful and continue on in, in, in the gospel and in the uh, furtherance of the gospel. So let's think about how we can live what we've talked about out in our own lives, this, this passion to get the gospel to the people uh, of the world. First, and this is so elementary, but it is often neglected. Live a faithful Christian life. Live a faithful Christian life. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What's this saying? It's saying that if you are a believer, a person who claims to know Jesus, and you're always having trouble with people, you're always aggravated with people, you're always at odds with people, you're, you're not a peacemaker, or... If you're a believer and your life doesn't have holiness, people aren't going to see Jesus. So what's going to make someone look at you and say, you know what? I get it. There's something real going on there. Well, it's a life of integrity, a life of holiness. When folks can say, you know what? That lady, her words, she means what she says. You can, you can take it to the bank. That man, he is an honorable man. Our lives must match up. If I speak the gospel and I tell people, yeah, I go to church. If, if you don't strive to live a life of integrity, please don't tell people you go to First Baptist Church. We want to be known as a people who live the faith. We, we want to be known as the real thing. We're all going to sin. We're all going to mess up as your pastor. I'm going to mess up sometimes. But when we do, what do we need to do? We need to go to the Lord and say, uh, God, forgive me. And we need to make it right with people when we do. People need to know us as a people who are holy. That means our language too. Some of us need our tongues saved, don't they? Sometimes I do too. I need to watch what I say. And, and, and I'm in a room full of people probably who, who, who face that. 
We want our actions, our words, our attitudes to line up. One of the most powerful witnesses is a faithful Christian life. Where that's missing, people aren't going to hear the gospel when you share it. I can remember when I was just beginning to really grow in the faith, there was a Shell gas station that I frequented, and a little old lady who worked there, she was as sweet as she could be, the kind of person that always encouraged you. Just You see her for just a couple minutes, but she always just blessed you. She was a solid believer, and on the dash of her car, she always had a big Bible right there on the dash of her car. I can remember being a, a college student and thinking, there's something about this lady, and it made me want to know Jesus more. It made me want to walk with him more. Why? Because I saw a life that, that sought to bless others. I saw a life of holiness, and it was attractive. It, it was beautiful, and we want people to see that beauty in our lives. They might be drawn to Jesus. Second. Now, this, again, is elementary. We've got to share the gospel with people. We've got to share the gospel with people. People aren't going to come to know Jesus if we're not telling them about him. Romans ten fourteen says it like this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, we have to be willing to take that step, and it's a challenging step to actually say, hey, this is how you can know Jesus. Like that conversation has to happen. Sometimes we've, it's been attributed to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That's the most ridiculous quote in the whole world. It's always necessary to use words. We must use words. Yes, we do want to preach the gospel by the way we live, but that's inadequate. We must use our words to say to people, this is how you can know Jesus. How can they believe in whom they have never heard? We must share the gospel. I read uh, about an older man in California this week who, whose neighborhood was disturbed. There was a fellow who was jumping from roof to roof. I guess it was a neighborhood where houses were close. And the police had been called, and finally the police cornered this fellow. They, they thought that he was high on drugs on top of this elderly man's home. The man was 83, and apparently the standoff was lasting for hours. The man wouldn't come down. The police were out. And finally, that elderly gentleman told the police, that sucker's fixing to come off my house. And he got a ladder, and he leaned it against his house, and he got up there, and he pushed the man off of his house. The standoff ended. Now, I'm not suggesting that's good advice. But I will tell you this. He got the job done. And when it comes to the gospel... We need to get the job done. We need to close the deal. We need to quit making excuses. We need to quit saying, well, I'm in, a, I'm in a holding pattern, building relationship, building relationship, building relationship. No, there has to be a time that we get up there and we get the job done. So, folks, we've got to share the gospel. How will they believe if they have not heard? We must be gospel bearers. Third, invest your life into a faithful family of believers. Invest your life into a faithful family of believers. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Also, you are to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying when there's a Christian community that's characterized by love, people on the outside say, what is it about those people? What is it about that group of people? 
They, they love each other. They care for each other. There's, there's something real there. Again, our witness as a church becomes a beautiful testimony of the gospel. Now, now we recognize this in, in other areas. Think about basketball. When you see a team where, where everyone who's out there on the court is working together, and a guy who's a good shot, instead of taking the shot, uh, gives an assist because, because he sees the possibility of the other one making the goal just a little bit better. And we, we see a team who, who flows like that. Every member is just working for the sake of the team, not to show off, not to try to advance themselves, but to advance the team. And we watch that, and we go, man, that's That's awesome. It's awesome the way they play together. And we said there's, there's some good coaching going on there. We, we recognize there's some selfless players. And what's happening there when a team is playing like that, we know it's right. On the other hand, we've all seen a player get out there, and even though he had a crummy shot, he took it instead of passing the ball. We, we've seen that because he wants to be a star, because he wants to build himself up. Now, you see, when a church... Everybody's doing their part, loving each other, caring for one another, striving to be the church together, working through the challenges, always challenges when you get people together, working through all that, striving to love Jesus and to love others. When we're that kind of a body, you know what the scriptures teach? The scriptures teach that that puts the gospel on display, like a basketball team that's selfless, that puts the team ahead. When we put the, the believer that the, our fellow believers ahead, and we put the mission that God has called us to ahead of our own desires, ahead of our own interests. God is glorified, and people see the gospel on display. Fourth, pray for unbelievers to be saved. We want to pray for unbelievers to be saved. Uh, we, we want to pray that the gospel will penetrate hearts. In Ephesians 4.29, the disciples prayed that they might be a bold witness, that they might preach the gospel with boldness. So we ought to pray that, that we'll have a clear witness, that we'll be a bold witness. We ought to pray for, for people who don't know Jesus. Are, can you think of people in your family, neighbors, people that you work with, maybe where you go to the doctor, different? Can you think of people in those arenas who might not know Jesus, are you praying for them? Are you praying for them every day that they might be saved? Let's pray for folks who don't know Jesus. And I want to encourage you to pray for unreached people groups, to pray for unreached people groups, to to pray for people who don't have access to the gospel. We've got the word of God and countless resources and churches everywhere, but there are places all over the world that don't have access to the gospel like we do. Would you pray for folks who live in those regions that God might work and people be saved. If you download our, our church app and you go to uh, the icon that says pray and missions, every day you'll get a new unreached people group to pray for. Parents, as you do family worship, take that and let your kiddos look at that picture and together as a family, pray for those folks. When you do your quiet time, there's a great opportunity pr- to pray for peoples of the world who don't have access to the gospel. Fifth, be willing to go. Be willing to go. Acts 1.8 says, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The point is, Jesus was saying, you're going to be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem. But not just that, you're going to be my witnesses in the surrounding area in Judea and Samaria, even beyond. And ultimately, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So this means we want to reach our neighborhoods and we want to reach the nations We want to reach our neighborhoods, and we want to reach the nations. Some of you, God, may be calling to to short-term mission work, to to take some time and and to to take a week or two weeks and and to to serve in in missions. We hope to give you some opportunities in the future, some more opportunities to, to do that sort of thing. Some of you, 
Some of you young people. It doesn't just apply to the young people, however. Maybe some of you who are nearing retirement. Maybe God's call for you is that you dedicate the rest of your life to, to serving him in mission. There, there are paths to do that. Instead of spending your life on this or that or luxuries or self-pleasure, maybe God is saying to you, you know what? I want you to give the rest of your days to the call. I want you to make the gospel known in this location or that location. So we thought together about how we answer this call as an individual. Let's think about how we focus on this as a church. So as a church, we try to, to move forward in telling the world about the love of Jesus in these ways. Number one, we support missions locally and globally. We support missions locally and globally. When you put money in the plate on a Sunday morning, just over 20% of that goes to support mission work all over the world, some local, some global. Uh, we, we help to fund the International Mission Board, which has just over 3,600 missionaries on the field, and many of these missionaries are in the darkest and most remote parts of the earth, places where they have to be completely undercover. And they're striving to plant churches and to reach people for the gospel. We send money to the North American Mission Board, which, which uh, helps to, uh, to plant churches, particularly in cities where there are very few gospel-believing churches. They've adopted 32 different cities. And, and we help to fund the outreaches in those areas. We also, a part of the, the money goes to the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, which, which goes to try to plant churches and reach people here in the state of Texas. And of course, we, we do local mission work as well. So we want to support missions locally and globally too. We want to emphasize church planting. We want to put a focus as a congregation on planting churches. Why? Because the New Testament is passionate about planting churches. We can go and we can share the gospel with someone, but what someone really needs to continue on in the faith is a, is a faithful church. That's the, that's the biblical vision. There's no talk of parachurch organizations, though I think parachurch organizations can be fantastic. But what you see is that the church is the guardian of the gospel. So we want, as a people, to be focused on planting churches. Uh, we have made a partnership with a couple of churches in New Orleans, uh, churches that uh, are church planters. They're, they're starting brand new churches in New Orleans. This is one of the, the 32 uh, cities in North America with the least access to the, to, to the gospel. That is to say with uh, a city with very few gospel uh, faithful churches in terms of uh, population versus number of churches. And so we're partnering with a couple of church planners there, and hopefully we'll be taking teams. We, we send some monthly support. Hopefully we'll be taking teams to New Orleans before long because we want to emphasize church planting. Uh, we want to provide evangelism training. Yeah, we want to provide evangelism training. In other words, we want to give periodic opportunities to help you learn how to share the gospel. We, we just finished one of these a, a couple months back on Sunday evenings, but we want to make opportunities available for you to learn how to tell people about Jesus. Next, we want to demonstrate the love of Christ through serving and through mercy ministries, through serving and mercy ministries. Now, when you give money on Sunday morning, part of that money goes toward disaster relief. North American Mission Board, as well as Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, they, they work to establish the disaster relief programs. And if you, you look on the news and watch, you'll always see Southern Baptist disaster relief teams on site. We're the third largest 
disaster relief organization in America. And, and the money that we give helps to support that. And right now, many of you have made direct contributions for disaster relief to try to serve people who are hurting in Jesus' name. In our own church, we, we have a food pantry and we often help people within our community who come to us with need, who come to us uh, with, with this situation or that situation, who need help. And, and we often strive to, to meet those things. So we want to be people who show mercy and who demonstrate the love of Jesus in those tangible ways. I do think when it comes to caring for our city as a whole, that's an area that our church needs to, to grow stronger in and to improve in, to, to make to, to make sure that folks in Uvalde know that the people of First Baptist Church care about them and love them. I think that's an area we can, we can grow, an area we, we need to grow in. Back in the mid-18th century and uh, around 1740, David Brainerd, who was intending to be a pastor, had gone to college at Yale and that was back in the days when Yale was committed to training gospel ministers, what they were founded for. And shortly before Brainerd's graduation in 1741, he made a remark that wasn't wise. He said that one of his, he said that one of his instructors had no more grace than a chair. Now, that's not a good thing to say. So they expelled him from the school, and he could not graduate. And at that time, in the colonies, there was a law that said you had to graduate from Yale, Harvard, or one of the European theological institutions to be a pastor. So he lost hope of pastoring. And through this kind of heartbreaking situation, he ended up sensing a call to take the gospel to, to the American Indians, to, to the Native Americans. And he was commissioned for that work by the Society in Scotland for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge. Brainerd commented that he was committed to burn out in one continued flame for God. He had a passion. He was a young man with a passion to see the gospel made known. He began his work uh, amongst uh, Native Americans, and after two years of almost fruitless preaching, very little to show for his work, he happened to be preaching among the Delaware Indians up in New Jersey. And he said as he was preaching, it was clear that God was doing something special amongst those people. There began to be sobs and, and, and crying. And eventually his preaching was drowned out because, because so many of those Native Americans were, were repenting and, and turning to Jesus. And they, they began to be discipled and, and began to grow Brainerd wrote this of, of that time. The power of God seemed to descend upon the assembly like a mighty rushing wind and with an astonishing energy bore down all before it. I stood amazed at the influence that seized the audience almost universally and could compare it to nothing more aptly than the irresistible force of a mighty torrent or a swelling deluge that with its insupportable weight and pressure bears down and sweeps before whatever it's in its way. In other words, he said the Spirit of God swept across those people and they were saved, they were, they were rescued. All the while, these new believers were being discipled. Brainerd's health was declining and it turned out he had tuberculosis and Brainerd died at the age of 29. Now his brother took over his work amongst the Indians there. And we would look at his life and say, wow, he had great impact eternally among those Native Americans. But brothers and sisters, that's not all. During this time, Brainerd wrote a series of journals 
and he kept, he faced all sorts of affliction. And he wrote about how God was, was moving and, and in his life and amongst the people that, that, that he was working with. And these journals were, were taken by Jonathan Edwards and they were edited and published and they became like fuel for so many young people and so many who, who, were, who were struggling with the call to mission. And they, they began, uh, so many began to, to read his journals and to say, this is what I want to do. I want to give my life to people who've never heard might know. William Carey, who had great impact in the modern missionary movement. Brainerd's journals impacted him. Jim Elliott, many of you remember him, died trying to reach Indians down in South America in the 1950s. Brainerd's journal. It was said that many a missionary would go on the field with their Bible and a copy of his journals. And so Brainerd's short life of 29 years, well, God has used it to impact countless people for eternity. I just have to ask you, brother, sister, what are you giving your life to? We chase after so many pleasures. We chase after so many things that that are nice and good, and none of those are bad. But friends, when that's our focus, and we can't tell people about Jesus, something's wrong. You know what I believe? I believe God is calling out of people right here who are going to say to him, God, I will give you no rest. I'm going to come before your throne and I'm going to cry out for my neighbors and I'm going to cry out for the nations. God, I'll give you no rest until I see you move in a powerful way, until I see that torrent of your spirit sweep across our town, across our own hearts, that people might be saved, that people might be saved here, that people might be saved all across the world. You see the church. It's meant, it's meant to tell the world about the love of Jesus. Let's be that. Brothers and sisters, let's do that. Let's quit making excuses. Let's get out on our knees. Let's cry out for God to move. Let's ask God to break our hearts for, for those who don't know him. And let's, let's get it done. Let's share the gospel. Let's do all we can to see our neighbors. Even if we got to lean a ladder up on the roof. We got to get serious, folks. Let's get it done. Let's see the nations reached for Christ. Some of you are here today and you do not know Jesus. You've known about him. Maybe you've gone to church some. You, maybe, maybe you were baptized when you were little or you went through a confirmation class or you walked to the front of the church or something, but, but there's never been that kind of life-changing turn in your life. Today, I want you to know. I want you to know that the most important decision lies right here before you. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the, I'm the only way you can have a right relationship with God, Jesus says. So friend, I ask you, has there been a time in your life where you've turned from your sin and you've placed your faith in Jesus? Have you cried out to him and said, God, please forgive me and save me? You see, God is pure and holy and he can't ignore our sin and we've all rebelled against him. We've all sinned and and gone our own way. Every one of us, the sweetest one, the sweetest in, in this crowd, still from a biblical perspective, a sinner in need of God's grace doesn't matter how nice you are. If you've never come to Jesus, God's wrath is turned against you. 
that God will, will judge your sin if you, if you don't turn from your sin and cry out to Jesus. And we shouldn't be angry that God would judge our sin. That's who he is. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of purity. He, he can't ignore our sin. To do so would be to compromise his very nature, his very character. And so what did God do in his love for us? He sent his son. He sent his son to come and to live here on earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And he was nailed to the cross. And he died on the cross. And he took the penalty for your sin and my sin upon himself. He was buried and he came back to life. He conquered death. And he made a way for a God who is pure and holy to receive those of us who are guilty. What is that way? We must call out to him in faith. So do you want to know Jesus today? Are you ready to take that important step? Then you say to the Lord in your heart, I'm guilty. I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross, that you were buried and that you were raised to life. And I want to follow you. And if you call out to God like that, you seek his forgiveness and you place your faith in him, the scriptures are clear, he will save you and he will never, ever let you go. Even if you fumble the ball, he'll never let you go. You'll always be his. Right now, there's no doubt in my mind that the Lord is speaking to some of your hearts. Some of you feel a sense of conviction. I need to do that. I need to know Jesus. Please hear me. Friend, that's God's grace in your life. That's God's grace wooing you to himself. Won't you respond? Today, you could believe. You, you could come to know Jesus. Makes a difference now and for all eternity. Join me in prayer.